If you would open your Bible and turn with me to Luke chapter 17 as we continue in our study of the gospel of Luke chapter 17. Last week we began uh, looking at these verses, verses 1 through 10, uh, looking at the topic of forgiveness. And if you remember last week, I said I'm not going to be able to uh, cover every uh, aspect of this, of this issue. It's addressed throughout Scripture. There will be questions that you have, uh, some very painful questions, personal questions. Um, personal questions, uh, pe- questions that are packed with emotion. And uh, so we're just going to try to follow through the text again today. There are going to be, uh, again, issues that are raised as we go through it, that uh, thoughts you have, questions you have, maybe even concerns that you have, feel free to come and, um, and talk to me about that. I'm thinking possibly about wrapping it up, uh, Lord willing, uh, the next time we come together. Uh, because there are some uh, significant issues here, but um, we'll see how it, how it goes this morning. Um, the Lord Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's talking to you, people who profess to follow him, uh, who love him, and Jesus is calling us to believe in him and to live in a way that uh, astonishes the world and glorifies God. Let's give our attention to the text, Luke chapter 17, beginning at verse 1. He said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, You must forgive him. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you uh, could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep uh, say to him when he has come in from the field, come in at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly? And serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. God in heaven, we need your spirit again to teach us, to guide us, to apply this. Uh, And we thank you that it's been given exactly for that purpose, that the, the loving Holy Spirit is here to, to lead us. And so we pray that uh, this morning uh, we would hear your voice loud and clear, and we would apply it, and by your spirit, Lord, see the power of God at work in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. 1984, a young woman, uh, Jennifer Thompson, um, was tragically uh, raped And a young man, Ronald Cotton, was um, arrested and um, asked to um, stand in a lineup. Uh, His photo had been given uh, to this young woman, Jennifer, and she had identified him as the perpetrator. And so uh, now they were asked to line up, and Ronald Cotton uh, did so with, uh, with trepidation but with some comfort because uh, he knew that he was not guilty of the crime. And, um, and yet, <clears throat> to his astonishment, uh, the young woman, Jennifer, 
uh, identified him in the lineup as, uh, as the man who had done this. And so they went to trial. Once again, in the courtroom, she testified uh, very confidently that uh, he, was, he was the man. Uh, well, <clears throat> and so he was sentenced to life in prison. The, um, his attorney uh, was convinced of his innocence and worked hard, and, and were, they were able uh, to get a retrial in, uh, two years later. <clears throat> the police were suspicious that another man actually uh, may um, have uh, committed the crime, and so they introduced this other man to Jennifer, uh, and uh, once again, she, she vowed that uh, she'd never seen this man, but that Ronald was uh, the culprit. And so once again, there was a trial, once again, she testified, and once again, uh, Cotton found himself uh, unjustly accused and convicted of a crime he had not committed, and his life, then once again, a life sentence. <clears throat> and so, um, 10 years went by, um, Jennifer attempted to get on with her life, um, but then she got a phone call that DNA testing had become available, and the police were asking if she'd be willing to submit a blood sample so uh, they could um, do those tests, she did, and um, to her astonishment, the test came back and proved that she had accused the wrong man, uh, that Ronald Cotton was not guilty. Uh, the man that um, she had vowed she'd never seen was, in fact, the, the, the criminal. She was devastated, of course. Uh, she asked the district attorney, how in the world am I supposed to give back a man 11 years of his life? Uh, she was overwhelmed with shame, guilt. Uh, she had stolen him from his family. She had uh, robbed him of his future in many ways. Um, and she didn't know how to make it right. Uh, she finally decided what she was going to do is simply go and talk to him. And so she uh, made the arrangements and um, they met together in a church in the town where the crime had taken place. She, um, she faced him and, and simply said, if, if, if I say I'm sorry for every second... Um, every minute, every hour, every day for the rest of my life, uh, could you possibly forgive me? She was sobbing, and um, Ronald Cotton um, began to weep as well and said, I just want you to have a good life. I want you to, I want you to be well and do well, and um, I've forgiven you. Uh, she never expected that, and, and that was the beginning of a friendship, and the two now have a, um, they go around the country advocating for eyewitness identification reform so that other people are not likewise um, unjustly accused and convicted. Bronze, in his book, Unpacking Forgiveness, <clears throat> writes, there's an article, in the article, uh, newspaper article, there's a picture of Ronald Cotton, Jennifer Thompson, you can look this up online for yourself. Uh, they're sitting on a park bench, both smiling in a way that could not be faked, the smiles of people at peace with one another and at peace with themselves, free from the weight of the burdens, because Ronald Cotton had given had uh, himself received the gracious forgiveness of his heavenly Father, he was able to forgive Jennifer Thompson graciously. Uh, God had used uh, this tragedy in Ronald uh, Cotton's life uh, to bring him to faith. In prison, uh, he had t contemplated suicide. He thought about uh, somehow um, finding a way to uh, get back and and to have someone murder the man who he thought was guilty. Um, but he. But he finally broke down and, and um, saw his own sin and came to faith in Jesus Christ, and it absolutely changed his life. And so he was able truly, deeply to forgive the woman who had wronged him. Real forgiveness is one of the most startling, God-honoring, um, humanly impossible 
divinely empowered things that a person could ever do. Uh, it, it is unlike anything the world is able to do in its own strength. It, it both faces the reality of sin, it addresses the truth of guilt, and at the same time <clears throat> defeats the power of sin to destroy lives. It's the most Christ-like thing that we will ever do um, in the sense that it is such a magnificent display of his, of his presence, his power, his grace, his truth. It is, it is Christ-like to the marrow of the bone. For, for Jesus came and died in order to forgive sinners. That's why he came, to seek and to save the lost, to give my life as a ransom. And so as we talk about forgiveness, we're talking about something that's precious in the sight of God. We're not just talking about relational health, how you can um, um, you know, have, have more healthy relationships. We are talking that, but that's not ultimately what this is about. This is not a, this is not a technique. It's not a, it's not a relational method. This is about the glory of God. Uh, this, is, this is so precious, so near to the heart of God. That, that Jesus says, right, those who will not forgive are not forgiven. It's just not possible to live a life of unforgiveness and uh, before a living God who has gone to such lengths to forgive us, it's not possible to live that kind of life before that God and be forgiven. So we're talking about serious things. Last week we, we noted that uh, forgiveness has to start by um, facing ourselves, where we face the truth about the ways that we've sinned and have tempted other people to sin, and the sober truth of that, how, how seriously God takes that. And then, and then we notice that forgiveness is how we respond to other people, not primarily as a feeling, but as a promise. When God forgives, he doesn't just emote uh, he makes a promise before all the angels of heaven and, and before the court of, of the law of, of God. God makes a promise that those sins, as real and awful as they are, will not be attributed to our account and will not interfere with our relationship. They're forgiven. They're forgotten. They're gone. It's wonderful news. It's, it's magnificent news for a sinner to know that, that the, the crimes that you've committed against God, God in Christ has forgiven. It's, it's a beautiful truth. And because the sin is removed, the door to reconciliation is opened. We said that, that forgiveness, God's forgiveness is always to the end of reconciliation. God doesn't forgive and then say, now stay in your room. Or I forgive you, but you just need to leave me my space for a while. He never does that. Now, and I say they're recognizing that in personal relationships, it can be extremely difficult because of the wound maybe that's been caused. And, and maybe there are other issues, and maybe issues of abuse. Maybe there are consequences of a sin or a crime that make true reconciliation in, in the deepest way not possible. But Christian forgiveness always is headed in that direction. It, it, it's a promise that this sin is no barrier to my love, my concern for you. My desire for your well-being. Well, this morning we're going to continue on in the text and see um, several truths about forgiveness, that it's conditional, that it's constant, it's continual, and that it's possible. Because what Jesus uh, commands here seems to be utterly, um, simply not doable. Not if you really face what he's saying. 
One of the most common mistakes that um, you sort of find in the church in general is this idea that Christians forgive unconditionally. Now, this is a this is a, a an issue I'm, I'm a little bit nervous to head into because uh, I can see how we could take this truth and use it as a reason um, why we will not forgive in our particular circumstance. Because the, the, the truth is that forgiveness is conditional. It's conditioned on the repentance of the offending party. Jesus says, if your brother repents, forgive. If he sins seven times and he repents seven times, he turns to you, which is what repentance is, and he, and he repents of the sin, not just says, I'm sorry, but there's, there's a turning to you and away from the sin, then you must forgive him. And if we, if we look at the, the text itself, you realize that, of course, that's true. Um, if, if forgiveness were unconditional, if, in other words, if if, if we were required to forgive the most egregious sins, no matter what the other person did, there, you wouldn't even need to rebuke a person then. What's the point of a rebuke if, if repentance is not necessary? I'll just put this in a, in a, in a, a personal uh, relation, uh, you know, setting. We can see the truth of this. If, um, if, if you're a parent and you have a rebellious teenager and uh, they're there's an ongoing pattern of rebellion of some sort. The, uh, the Christian parent doesn't just keep saying, I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you. The rebellious teenager would love the Christian parent to say that and just sort of let them go along. But you, you, it's not possible for a Christian parent who loves their child to just continually say, now, if the Christian parent rebukes the rebellious child, and the rebellious child says, Mom and Dad, I'm, you're right. You're right. I'm sorry. I, I, I don't want to do that. I want to go this way. I don't know why I keep doing the same stupid thing over and over again. Then the Christian parent forgives. It's done. And if it happens again, right, the next day, it happens the same day, right? When there's repentance, there's forgiveness. When there's not repentance, the Christian stance isn't just to gloss it over, you see, and say, well, I just forgive you. I just forgive you. There's a lot of literature out there. Um, Lewis Smeads, 30 years ago, maybe wrote a, a very popular book arguing that that's exactly what Christians do. We just forgive. And, and, and he argued that it's good for our own emotional well-being. If you don't forgive, you're going to become bitter. Well, the truth is, you see, if you forgive in that sort of um, just therapeutic, shallow, superficial way, if, if the reality of the sin isn't dealt with, the relationship is never restored and the bitterness is going to be there. There's, it, it doesn't work just to say, I forgive, at least not biblically. Because, because that sort of forgiveness never moves towards reconciliation. It can't move towards reconciliation because the issue hasn't been dealt with. And so because forgiveness is, is in the pursuit of reconciliation, because it's not a feeling but a promise to put the offense away, to be done with, well, then the offense needs to be dealt with. John, Piper writes this, When a person who wronged us does not repent with contrition and confession, he cuts off the full work of forgiveness. We can still lay down our, good, our ill will. We don't have to be uh, angry or bitter. We can hand over our anger to God. We can seek to do him good. 
But we cannot carry through reconciliation or intimacy. As people were raised, well, what about Jesus on the cross? When Jesus says, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Isn't, isn't he forgiving them, all of these people, unconditionally? And I think, um, no, he's not. Jesus is taking a stance of grace. He's appealing to the Father. And those who repented were forgiven. But see, God doesn't forgive unconditionally. He, um, MacArthur says this, Divine forgiveness is never granted to people who remain in unbelief and sin. Those who clung to their hatred of Jesus were by no means automatically absolved from their crime by Jesus' prayer. But those who repented and sought forgiveness, like the centurion or the thief on the cross or the priest or the people in the crowd, all who later embraced him would find abundant mercy in answer to Christ's petition on their behalf. So when Peter preaches the first Christian sermon, he charges the Jews with crucifying Jesus. And he doesn't just say to them, but don't worry about it, you're all forgiven. He presses the charge of the sin, he rebukes them. And they, in turn, moved by the Holy Spirit to see the the horror of what they've done, come to Peter and say, what must we do? Peter says, repent and believe. Repent and believe. And so Bronze, I think, is right when he says Christians are not called to automatically forgive every offense. Rather, we should offer forgiveness to all. We should maintain an attitude of forgiveness, have a stance of grace, ever willing to forgive as God in Christ has so graciously forgiven us. But repentance needs to be a part of the forgiving process. Now, there are a couple of questions that come up here. One is, how can I know if the person is truly repentant? Take the case of the man who sinned seven times in a day. Most of us, I think, would be tempted to say, clearly the man's not repentant. Now, that's not an illogical statement, and there might be evidence you could find in Scripture to, to make that statement. But Jesus isn't dealing specifically with the nature of repentance here. He's dealing with the nature of forgiveness. Forgiveness is always ready to move, even if the offense happens in a repeated manner. But there are certain, just quickly, markers of repentance, aren't there? Uh, godly grief is a marker of repentance. That there's a, there's a sense that a, that a sin has occurred, an offense has happened, and, and I did it. And I wish I hadn't done it. And, and before God, I, I, I recognize I've dishonored him, and, and it grieves my heart, and I'm so sorry that I, I wounded you. Please forgive me. That's Repentance. There's an eagerness to repair the hurt, an eagerness to repay the loss. And people who, who show no eagerness to do those things, right, we, we have a reason to say, I don't, I don't know if you really understand what repentance is. Um, just going and, and saying, I'm sorry, and then just moving on with your life is not going to accomplish it. It, it, it doesn't, it's not what God calls repentance. There's a new attitude, there's a new action, there's... There's repentance. But that's not the point that Jesus is making. The point that Jesus is making is that our lean has to be grace. The lean has to be 
I love you. I forgive you. Seven times you've sinned against me today. Seven times you've repented today. I forgive you. That's an astonishing thing. It's exactly what Jesus says. If your brother sins seven times and seven times turns, this is the number of fullness, you must forgive. Forgiveness is the Christian response, you see, to a repentant sinner every time. It's a lifestyle. It's our, it's our way of being in a world where people will sin against us. It's our native response to sin, even repeated patterns of sin. Now, this is, this is a shocking statement. The world looks at this like this is utter foolishness. Who, who in their right mind would do this? In fact, the world would have labels for a person like this. You're an enabler. You're codependent. There's something sick and twisted about you that, you that you are willing to participate in that kind of a process over and over and over again. Something's wrong with you. Nobody in their right mind does this. But Jesus says, you must forgive him. Now, there are various what about questions that will pop up here. What about abuse situations? where the person does an abusive thing physically, emotionally, whatever, and comes back and says, I repent, and then does exactly the same thing, and comes back and says, I'm sorry, I I repent. And there seems to be remorse, and then it happens again. Well, again, I can't, we can't, um, we're not going to be able to unravel all that. Let 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 me just say this, that the... And maybe this is why we have another sermon. Um, when violence is done against a person, uh, the Bible nowhere um, commands God's children to, let me say it this way, we have a right as God's children to hold brothers and sisters accountable to God's will and God's law. So if, if a... Um, if a marriage partner is, is sinning against the marriage covenant uh, in, in profound ways, violating, breaking marriage covenant, the, the spouse has the right and even the obligation that's being sinned against, has the right to say, I, will not abide. I, I, I won't do this. I won't abide this. Um, we, we don't do that unilaterally. We don't make those decisions on our own, but we have the right as as. Christians to call other Christians to account, and that would mean that in an abusive situation, the the person that's being abused um, does not simply have to say, I forgive you, and we just move on. There could be situations where um, maybe the repentance is is, is sincere, and we say, I I do forgive you, but there are consequences, that this is a pattern that's, that's not honoring to God, and it's not okay, and, and forgiveness doesn't do away with uh, whatever necessary consequences there need to be in place. But forgiveness is still the lean. Even even when there's abuse, forgiveness is is still the stance. The desire is a reconciled relationship. I mean, we can do whatabouts, you see, that are in attempts to just sort of skirt around what Jesus is saying. And we might, people have said, well, I think that, you know, 
relationship like this or forgiveness like that and reconciliation like that would be damaging to my health or my family or my kids. Well, we, see, we tend to find a way out. Jesus gives us a way forward. When the disciples say, Lord, increase our faith, they're looking for a way out. They're, they're like, Lord, seven times in one day, forgive the way you're talking about forgiveness? That's not possible. That's not realistic. You're going to need to do something. You're, you're, the responsibility is going to have to fall back on you. You increase our faith. Well, Jesus, you see, um, gives them a way forward. They're looking for a way out. Well, the Lord didn't give us the faith. I just couldn't do it. Um, it's not possible. Jesus says, well, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. If that sounds like a rebuke, it is a rebuke. Jesus is not telling them, um, he's not telling them, of course you can do it in your strength. He's not saying that at all. He's he's. But he's saying to his disciples, you have everything you need to accomplish what I've commanded. Even forgiving an offender seven times in a day, a repentant offender. Because you see, what faith does is faith, in a sense, unites us to the power of God. If you had mustard seed faith, mustard seed, of course, was the smallest known seed of the day. And a mulberry tree, Jesus picks a mulberry tree on purpose. It has a massive root system. Reichen says, in those days, uh, the mulberry was considered the most firmly rooted of all trees. In fact, some rabbis once said, a, a mulberry tree once established would stay rooted for 600 years. This isn't just a little something you pluck out of the ground. It's, it's massively rooted in. It's not possible. And yet Jesus says, if you, if, you had, if you had faith like that, you could say to that thing, I want you in the Mediterranean. Now, obviously, it's hyperbole. We, we shouldn't have a ministry of removing mulberry trees. The, the, but the point is, you see, that faith is incredible. Faith in God accomplishes the humanly impossible. And so if there's faith, this is possible. Mark 9, 23, Jesus says, All things are possible for one who believes. All things are possible. And the Bible, of course, is full of magnificent stories of, of normal people, weak people, flawed people, sinful people, who were able to do incredible things by the power of God as they believed in him. Hebrews 11, 32, what more shall I say? Time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. By faith, through faith. John writes, 1 John 5, faith is the victory that overcomes the world. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And so Jesus says this is eminently possible for the one who believes. 
It's possible to forgive people who wounded you horribly by faith. But see, the question then is, what do you believe? What do I believe? Well, we have to believe the truth about Jesus. We have to believe that, that in Jesus, God has done the impossible. He's made a way for us to be saved. That God has done the, the unbelievable. He sent his own son so that, that by the death, and the, the, the awful death, Suffering the, the penalty of divine wrath for our sin. By doing that, God has made a way for you to be completely forgiven. The good news in this text, that if Jesus requires us to forgive seven times in a day, you know the good news is? God is all the more willing to forgive you seven times in a day. That's good news. When you sin and then you, you repent and you say, God, I'm so sorry. And, and then you sin again. The same day, the same sin. The devil's going to be whispering to you pretty quickly, don't even bother. Don't, don't go back to God. Not unless you're serious. Not until you fix this thing. Not until you've had a little time of, of, of riding the ship, so to speak. God says, come to me. Come to me. Seven times. Same sin. Come to me seven times and confess the truth about that sin. And, and, and seven times tell me that you, that you truly want to be done with this sin. You want to turn and walk in my ways. Seven times, I promise you, every time I will forgive. That's great news. And that good news, you see, we need to believe if we're going to love people and love Jesus and forgive sinners. We, we are so magnificently forgiven. That's the whole story, point of the story Jesus tells in Matthew 18 of the man who's been forgiven this gazillion dollar amount that he could never possibly in 100 years repay. And it's all forgiven. And then he goes out and he grabs a guy that owes him 10 bucks and, and says, pay me what you owe. And that's what we're doing as Christians when, when we don't forgive. So we, so we have to actually believe that we are forgiven. And we need to believe then that the forgiveness that we receive places a non-negotiable obligation upon us. We simply can't ignore that as we deal with each other. We just can't. We have to forgive. We need to believe that we have to forgive. Because there will be times when every fiber in your body doesn't want to. Most of those fibers is just going to be the fiber of pride. But there will be fear. There will be a sense of vulnerability. There will be um, concern maybe what this person might do with this. You just have to believe God demands you do it. You need to believe in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus says to his disciples, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and... Don't do what I tell you to do. Why would, why would you call me Lord? You see, we have to believe that Jesus Christ actually commands it. The, the story here that he tells in 7 through 10, it's a, it's a shocking story to, to modern sensibilities. Um, we're not used to servants. In those days, servants are very common. And, and uh, the master, uh, he hired them for a reason. They had a contract. And the deal went like this. I'm the master, you're the servant. So during the day, you go out and work in the fields. And then when, when the day is done, you come home and you make me dinner. That's the contract. And um, it would have been unthinkable for the, the servant to come home at the end of the day and say, Master, it's been a long day. Um, why don't you, the food's in the kitchen. I'm just going to sit here and eat with you. It doesn't work like that. You would think the same if you went to a, a fancy restaurant and, and the waiter came and she just said, wow, what a day. Do you mind if I just sit down and join you? Um, 
I'm sure if you'd like something, you know, the, the kitchen's right around that corner. It's, no, no, no. The way this works, you see, we come here and then we pay ridiculous amounts of money and you serve us. That's how it works. And um, Jesus says that's how this works. You, you, because we might be tempted to think if we do something so magnanimous as forgive somebody, there ought to be some accolades someplace. Somebody should be applauding. Somebody should be saying thank you. And Jesus says, uh, no, that, that was your duty. It's your duty. It's, it's just what Christians do. And we don't do it for the applause. Now, wonderfully, God delights in obedience. Wonderfully, God will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Praise God. But he doesn't owe us that. He doesn't owe us that. It's our duty. We need to believe it's our duty. That, that not forgiving is not an option for a child of God. Friends, I um, remember I went to, um, back in college, you know this already, but um, I ended up attending from time to time First Assembly of God. One of the things that, that uh, really um, impressed me profoundly was the, a marriage class they had. I, I think I've told you the story before. I wasn't married. We were, Joanne and I were dating, but and they made pretty clear that the marriage class was just for adults, but I was just, couldn't help myself. It was just for married people. Um, but I, so I slipped in and sat in the back. Because I wanted to see, how do they do this? And I saw couples standing up. Um, there were three different couples that stood up and testified of the way that sin had uh, invaded their marriage. And there were affairs and profound violations of marriage covenant. And yet... Uh, they each told their story of how God had given them the grace to forgive each other. And now their marriage was, was better than it had ever been. And um, I thought, that's, that's really the gospel at work in an amazing way. I am so um, blessed to be a pastor in a church where people lean towards forgiveness. We have magnificent stories of forgiveness in this congregation. Many of them you don't know about. Uh, but if any of you are married for over two weeks and, and still like each other, you've forgiven, and you've forgiven, and you've forgiven the same thing from the same person in ways that if people are, really knew what was going on, they might look at you funny. And you've done it because love requires it. Jesus commands it. And God has changed your heart, so you want to give it. If, you, um, if you've not experienced that, then, then I just plead with you to think about your relationship with Jesus Christ. If you're a person who says, you know, I just don't forgive. I just can't forgive. I hope you never sin in your life. Because if you sin and you hold that stance, you will never be forgiven. Friends, just, this is an open door for us. This is an invitation that comes with a command. We have to be these kinds of people that lean towards grace. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3, I'll wrap with this. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, 
As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And Paul uses a, a word, not the common word for forgiveness. It's a word that, that uh, can also be translated as gracious. So being gracious to one another as the Lord has been gracious to you. That the Christian's stance, his disposition is grace. I give you grace. Grace. You, you've offended me. I, I forgive you. I love you. I refuse to be separated from you. If there's, if there's egregious sin that has to be dealt with, then, then, I will, then I will go through the hard work of dealing with it. And I will plead with you to, to see the sin and for Christ's sake, turn and repent that we can be restored and, and, and your life can move forward in ways that pleases God. But, but my stance is going to be grace. My stance is going to be peace and forgiveness as Christians. We, by the power of God, can do this. We really can. Praise God. It's true. Let's pray. God in heaven, we are sinful people and we live with sinful people. And Lord, some of us have held on to sins committed against us. We've nurtured those wrongs. We've harbored them. And we've grown small and bitter and fearful. And we desperately need you to save us. What a tragedy it would be if we, Lord, sat under the gospel and heard the commands of our Savior and yet never obeyed and never experienced the power of God that's able to make us grace-filled grace people. Lord, you know the relationships in our lives where this truth needs to be applied. Maybe we're the person who sinned, and we need to go and repent in truth. Maybe we're the person who's been sinned against, and we need to invite our offender, to a place of grace. So, Lord, apply this truth to our hearts, to our lives, the reality of them, that this is not just a sermon that we hear, but, but Jesus Christ, our Lord, has spoken to us. And by your grace and your power, we will find freedom and peace and joy as we believe in you and walk according to your commands. Lord, we want our life to honor and glorify you. And this is a critical part of it. So Lord, I, I just pray that you'd be a work in every heart here. By your spirit, lead us in this truth. In Jesus' name, amen.